Medical Minute. With Dr. Rick and Dr. Danny. That's Dr. Rick. And that's Dr. Danny, and we're excited to be back for another episode of Medical Minute. And we're very excited for me to tell a new dad joke, aren't we, Rick? I'm excited. Yeah, Brenda's excited. She's always, yeah. Rick, where do cows display their artwork? A museum. Yes, he's Boom. read this book before. <laughs> he's read this. That was a, give me another one. Okay. That's weak. Weak sauce. If I know the joke, that's not good. What do you call a cow in an earthquake? A movable object? A milkshake. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Uh, That's awesome. So we're switching it up a little bit here in our podcast today. Yeah, Danny, usually you're the one that comes in with the printed out facts and figures and has all the information and gets to sound smart. And I'd like to change that around every once in a while. That's one way to put it, Rick. We've talked a lot about medical oncology, which consists of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. But today we're going to give Rick control of the microphone and talk to us a lot about radiation oncology. So, yeah, radiation oncology, uh, it's definitely a very niche field of medicine. You know, there's not a lot of radiation oncologists relative to medical oncology or internal medicine or family medicine or pediatrics. It's a very small field of medicine. So I think a lot of people, um, lay people and also people in the medical community, Danny, I don't know if you can speak that, don't really know kind of what we do or what what we're about. Um, You know, I didn't know what radiation oncology was when I started medical school. I had no idea it was a specialty. And then um, at the University of Florida, their department there is world-renowned and historically one of the pioneering um, institutions for radiation oncology. And I did a rotation um, at the time. I was a second year. I think I did a week in their clinic, and it just seemed like a really cool thing. And then I explored further and then ultimately fell in love with. But um, I don't know, Danny, what do you think? When you went through your medical training, mm-hmm. did you get a lot of exposure to me- radiation oncology before fellowship? Well, I would say initially in medical school, um, not much at all. And then in residency, once um, I rotated in hematology and, and medical oncology and did some of those ward rotations, um, when we had our multidisciplinary clinics where we reviewed cases and the tumor boards, um, that's where we really got the introduction to radiation oncology and um, and the difference between the fields. You know, I think, um, you know, from a layman's perspective that, you know, radiation oncology, medical oncology, you might not know the exact details of the differences in, in how we treat patients. And really, it's a collaboration between the two fields. Um, you know, medical oncologists use medications, IV medications, oral, you know, drugs to help combat a various, various types of cancer. Then radiation oncology obviously uses different forms of radiation to treat cancer. And it's, it's a collaboration between us that really helps patients, uh, you know, during their cancer treatment. And some, some patients, you know, require radiation and may not require any medical treatment in terms of IV or oral medications for their cancer. And sometimes vice versa, sometimes patients do not need radiation uh, for treatment of their cancer. And so it, it is confusing, I think, and, and you know, we're here to kind of help guide them uh, through the way. Yeah, I think the last uh, statistic I heard, uh, I might be getting a little wrong, but it's something like of cancer diagnoses in the United States, 70% of patients will at some form in their treatment get some form of radiation. So. It's certainly not every diagnosis, but it's the majority of diagnosis. Radiation usually plays some role 
either in a curative setting or in a palliative setting, you know, depending on the situation. Um, but I think, you know, as a field for patients, you know, I think people initially hear the word radiation and you think of things like Chernobyl and mm-hmm. nuclear reactors and glowing in the dark and mm-hmm. like growing fishtails and superpowers and Spider-Man and all those sort of things. But in reality, that's not, um, the vast majority of radiation is not using active, um, you know, radiation that would make someone become radioactive. You know, there's many different forms of radiation, which we can kind of briefly touch on, but the vast majority of them are the radiations given externally, Mm -hmm. meaning that it's a non-invasive treatment um, using electrons or photons or protons, which are basically different vehicles to deliver um, the radiation uh, in most cases to treat cancer, but also in um, some cases to treat non-cancerous conditions. Radiation has been used historically for things going back as far as acne, which we don't do anymore, Mm -hmm. but also for other benign conditions like arthritis or Dupuytren's contractures and Mm -hmm. other things. So while the vast majority of what we do is uh, related to cancer, there is a part of our practice that is used for non-cancerous conditions. I think you brought up a good point, and a common question is, you hear radiation, there's kind of a fear there of, oh my gosh, what are the side effects from this radiation treatment? You know, am I going to feel miserable? Um, you know, is it going to burn me? Is it going to, you know, make uh, make my quality of life worse? And so I think, you know, what I've learned over the years is that uh, the techniques have become a lot better. The side effects have gotten a lot better. Um, can you walk us through, you know, say, for example, we have a new uh, patient coming in with a, a lung cancer diagnosis, and it's a, a fortunate early stage lung cancer diagnosis. How do you approach a case like that, Rick? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. I mean, things have changed over time, and that's as in your field, it's very hard to change attitudes about certain treatments when people only remember the way things were, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, however long, many years ago, you know, before we had in your field, some of the medications that help reduce side effects from chemotherapy and other things that have gotten Mm -hmm. so much better in today's era. And then in radiation, a lot of it's been technologically driven where we can focus the radiation to the tumor more specifically and minimize the radiation going elsewhere in the body, which greatly reduces the risk of side effects. So for that patient with early stage lung cancer that you mentioned, you know, I think the First thing you do in any of these cases is obviously once you confirm a diagnosis um, is get a multidisciplinary discussion involved of the radiation oncologist, the medical oncologist, as well as the cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, Because the standard of care for early stage lung cancer in patients who can get surgery is to have uh, um, their lobe of the lung removed that has the cancer and a lymph node dissection. Mm -hmm. But as you know, um, unfortunately in the reality, there's a lot of folks who either medically can't tolerate a surgery or don't want to go to surgery because they're fearful of of the process. So what's really evolved in that situation for us is targeted radiation um, to the lung cancer where we give big high doses of radiation and essentially try to ablate or kill all of the cancer cells using radiation. So that's what, you know, has become increasingly utilized um, in the last really 10 years since this technique was first developed Mm -hmm. and a lot of that's just because of the improvements in technology that we have yeah and you can do that and i think you can talk about this a little bit more is you you can do that sort of treatment in a pretty short period of time yeah so the 
historically people, depending on the, it's all dependent on the diagnosis, but, um, you know, radiation used to be as long as, you know, two, two and a half months, five days a week, 45 treatments of radiation, you know, lots and lots of visits mm -hmm. to the radiation oncologist. And now in certain situations, we can really shorten that to as short as one treatment. Um, you know, so it's been a pretty big sea change in our field um, because of the advancements in the technology. Uh, it's uh, more convenient for patients um, and the side effects are less and the outcomes are better, if not um, equal. Mm -hmm. How long does it take, you know, a patient and, you know, it doesn't, we don't have to talk about a specific type of cancer, but if a patient comes in and you think they're a candidate for radiation from the time they meet with you for a consultation to the treatment start, how long does it take to get ready for that? Yeah, so the, the process is definitely a unique part of medicine, um, at least to my knowledge. You know, we meet somebody, we, you know, go, like a normal consult like you would have with any other kind of doctor. And then if they're a candidate for radiation, we have to do what's called a radiation planning scan. You may hear it as it's called a simulation or a mapping scan. There's all different vernacular for it. But essentially, in most cases, what that means is a CT scan um, that is done in the patient is actually put in the position with which they're going to be treated in. So if you're treating uh, head and neck cancer, we make a custom-made mask that molds to their face and their neck. If you're treating um, a prostate cancer, you create essentially a little beanbag cradle that goes around their pelvis area. So it's custom-made immobilization essentially for the tumor type because when you're delivering this very precise focused treatment, you want to make sure you're lining up correctly day in and day out. And this is the first part of that is this immobilization. So that CT scan then gets fused with all of the other diagnostic scans a patient may have, MRIs, other CAT scans, PET scans, and we use all that information and take that into account when we design the radiation plan. So it's a pretty involved process, um, but to answer your question, usually it's from the time we do that planning scan, for most cases it's probably about a week to a week and a half. Um, depending on the situation, we can do it faster, but on average it's probably about a week to okay. start. It sounds like you guys use some pretty sophisticated technology to plan these uh, patients for the radiation treatment. And um, I know that you work with some pretty f sophisticated people, physicists, and a lot of your radiation team really uh, know how to use this technology to formulate the plans for patients. Well, like a lot of medicine, radiation oncology is a team sport. And mm -hmm. certainly, I could not be a radiation oncologist without a good team behind me. And that is our nursing staff, it's our physics staff, it's our dosimetry staff, and it's our therapy staff. So mm -hmm. the, what do those different folks do? So radiation therapists are go to school just to be a radiation therapist. So it's a special licensure that you actually get um, by doing uh, you know, practicals and shadowing and, and other take tests and things like that. And those are actually the folks that will set you up each day for your radiation treatments. So when you come in for treatment, they'll get you into that position I was talking about before, the one that we did on the planning day. Mm -hmm. And those are the folks that you'll see most often because you'll be seeing them every day when you come in for treatment. The physics and the dosimetry team are basically part of the planning process. So they assist with um, coming up with the appropriate radiation plan design. So as the physician, what we do is we essentially for lack of a better word, draw on mm -hmm. the scans of where we want the cancer to go and draw where we don't want it to go. And um, 
they, once we give them that information, they help formulate what they think is the best way to deliver the radiation. And then we all sit down together in uh, a group setting and basically review a patient's plan and then tweak it as needed depending on the situation. Um, and so that's what the dosimetry team trains to do. Again, goes to special uh, school for that, um, dosimetry mm -hmm. school, and becomes a, a certified dosimetrist. And so that's their area of expertise is in the planning. And then the physics area of expertise is they're kind of like the jack of all trades. So they assist with <clears throat> the planning if need be, but they also do a lot of the behind the scenes work in terms of quality assurance. Um, so they do a lot of making sure the machine is running properly, making sure that when I say as the doctor, I'm giving this amount of radiation to this spot, they're the ones that verify that that's actually what's happening mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. making sure the machine's calibrated to do the right thing. Um, and so that they're, like I said, kind of really the jack of all trades and help keep, um, keep the ship heading in the right direction. And I think some of our listeners may not realize that, you know, part of your day is, is not only seeing patients, which is, you know, a big portion of the day, but it's, it's meeting with your staff and really uh, developing these plans together. And so I see you when I walk through the halls, you're, you're uh, sitting right next to them, you know, in the dark room, examining those images and really coming up with these plans to help our patients. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a weird specialty to be in as someone who looking at it from the outside, because mm -hmm. You know, it's not a pure procedure specialty where you're in the operating room all day, um, although we do do some procedures in the operating room, but the vast majority is not. It's really a, cl a full clinic day, like, you know, any right. outpatient physician, but then you also have to block off time to work, like you said, with the team to, um, you know, do, do the contouring <clears throat> as well as do the planning of the radiation. So... I feel like half the time, you know, their job is to chase me down because right. they're trying to, it's like herding cats, right? They're trying to track me down and yeah. get me squared away in a room. And then as soon as I sit down to look at something, I'm being pulled in I somewhere see. else. Yeah. So it's a, it's a busy day, but the day goes by fast. Um, definitely. But it's a, definitely a unique, unique field of medicine. Now I heard you touch on um, doing procedures, and I think you're talking about some of the brachytherapy techniques that you do. Could you tell the audience what brachytherapy is and, and what kind of procedures you do for it? Oh, awesome segue, Danny. So brachytherapy is essentially, um, there's several different ways to deliver it, but it's basically giving radiation through an external source directly into the patient. Um, so where the radiation I was mostly talking about before is what we call external beam radiation or radiation from the outside. Brachytherapy is typically the, the easiest way to think about it is radiation essentially given from the inside. So the one that most people hear about is prostate seeds. That's been around for decades mm -hmm. where we put radioactive seeds in the prostate. That's falling more out of favor as we've developed newer <clears throat> techniques on how to treat prostate cancer. So now most brachytherapy is done using what they call remote afterloading, uh, mm. which is basically just a fancy way of saying, we insert a device into the patient. Um, mm -hmm. If it's prostate, it's catheters into the prostate. If it's um, GYN cases like endometrial cancer or cervical cancer, usually you're inserting some sort of um, intracavitary device into the patient. And the reason it's changed is now we can insert those devices plan the radiation with those devices in the patient and then deliver the radiation after the plan is created versus before what would happen is you would let's say put in the seeds in the patient and once the seeds were in there's no hmm. re removing them it's mm -hmm. sort of you're, you've committed 
to what you're doing. So with right. this evolving technique is things can be done in real time with the device in, which allows, in my opinion, for uh, better cancer care and less risk of issues or side effects. And the devices are interesting. I remember in fellowship looking at, you know, you're, you're basically, um, there's radiation which is traveling through these catheters or these kind of tubing mm -hmm. to get to the location where you're radiating and staying there for a defined period of time mm -hmm. and then going right back away. So you're not, you know, the radiation isn't staying in the person per se. Correct, it's correct. Yeah, so the most common source is um, Iridium-192, mm -hmm. which is uh, basically the where the radiation gets generated from is from that source and mm -hmm. like you said it's basically in this little r2d2 looking unit that rolls around and right. actually houses the radiation in it and we know based on uh, calculations of how much radiation of the iridium 192 was in there how much time has passed since that's been put in there using things like half-life and you know won't right. bore everyone with the details but you basically can calculate how much radioactivity is in that source and then like you said the radiation is given through the catheters, through the afterloader, into the device, and is actually in the patient for a preset period of time to deliver the right amount of radiation. And then those sources go back into the little R2D2 house and are removed from the patient. So the patient goes home with no radiation inside of them, which I think is also a big difference from historically the way things were done um, in the past. I think we've amazed Brenna at some of this technology. I am shocked. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. You know, I'm obviously very biased, but it's a it's a very diverse specialty, as you as you see in your field, Danny. Like you, you know, we treat cancers head to toe. We're not limiting ourselves to to one one site or one spot. So it's a constant keeping you on your toes, and you have to be up to date on a lot of different things because. Technology evolves rapidly, um, standard of care evolves rapidly, and as mm -hmm. I, I think you guys in medical oncology have it even more crazy with all the drug approvals that seem to happen in mm -hmm. a, you know, astronomical clip. Um, you know, radiation doesn't have the, the necessarily the drugs that are getting approved, but it's more typically the evolution, at least in the last couple of decades, has been more on the technology side. Definitely. Yeah, I think, you know, the... The internet and, and email capabilities and stuff where we can get the alerts of all these new FDA approvals have really helped us to, hey, this got approved today, you better read up on it and know, you know what the new indication is. So, uh, But it is evolving at a rapid rate. Um, you know, when you think about uh, the targeted radiation techniques and you know, could you tell us a little bit about stereotactic radiation, stereotactic body radiation, or also called stereotactic ablative body radiation? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between those? Are yeah. they the same thing, and, yeah. and how do you choose so it? This is the, um, uh, when I try to counsel patients in this, you know, a lot of it, unfortunately, uh, earmuffs Brenna as a marketer, but a lot of it's just marketing mumbo-jumbo garbage. Mm -hmm. um, that it, it really in the <laughs> nothing sense, against you bro. no nothing personal <laughs> no, obviously. Uh, but it really is it's marketing because yeah. you know there you think people come in and they say i i want my gamma knife or i want mm -hmm. cyber knife or i want x y and z right and so it's sort of explaining to folks that there are many ways to skin a cat it's all the same essential principle in those situations it's just mm -hmm. whatever brand name device you you know, decide to use, and the, the basic way to think about it is 
the main difference between quote-unquote traditional radiation and stereotactic radiation is just how we do the immobilization. Mm -hmm. So how strict we are in terms of how much movement will allow. Um, mm -hmm. And then also what we take into account when we do the planning. So we take into account breathing and all these other factors when the, so we can actually see in real time when a patient breathes, does their cancer move? And we take that into account when we do the planning. And the other thing is the target. So for example, if you're talking about rectal cancer, we're treating the entire pelvis. So it's not really a focused target per se. You're treating the lymph nodes of the pelvis and the rectum. So in those situations, you don't need anything stereotactic because you're treating a bigger field. When we're treating a small lung cancer or a small cancer in the brain, you need to be very precise and focused with the treatment. So whether you call that radiosurgery, whether you call that stereotactic body radiation, SBRT, or stereotactic ablative body radiotherapy, SABR, um, you know, it really depends on what country you're in. So SBRT mm -hmm. is typically utilized in the United States. Mm -hmm. SABR is really utilized in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and then radiosurgery is typically used to mean getting radiation that's targeted to the brain. So mm -hmm. radio, radio surgery typically implies the brain only. Mm -hmm. Fractionated stereotactic radio surgery implies the brain, but with multiple <laughs> fractions. So you can see where... I think we should ban people using saber in the United States so I don't get confused. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's just, it's, it, but it's unfortunate because you read <laughs> right. on the internet as a patient, right. I would be confused if I didn't know. You, know right. you read about all these different things and your doctor tells you, well, I'm going to do this, but if it's not the quote-unquote brand name or the quote-unquote technique, you may think you're getting short changed in treatment when in reality it's the same thing. We're just, you're mm -hmm. using different vocab words. And it makes, I think it makes some of these companies and some of us as doctors feel smarter than we really are because we get to use all this terminology. But in reality, it's not that, you know, a lot of these things can be bundled under the same words. Mm -hmm. So, Danny, I know this gets real confusing with all these acronyms and Saber, SBRT, you hear words like IMRT, VMAT, I mentioned I think 4D, the breathing. Mm -hmm. It's hard to wrap your head around, you know. Um, one of the simplest ways for patients, if they're interested to know what these different type of treatments mean and, and want to get more information, you know, our website uh, at Cancer Specialists in North Florida has all that information. And I think, Brenda, we even have little videos that have been posted that help explain some of these things in more detail. So, you know, I don't want to put uh, put the people who aren't interested in this podcast to sleep because I'm pretty sure the OGs are snoring right now as we speak. I think but Rick is featured in some of these videos, isn't he? He's in like three of them. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, if, if you want to see more Rick, please go to the website. If you want to hear more of my nasally drone, I can be found at... <laughs> Cancerspecialistnf.com. There you go. What Brenda said. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, I'll post All a right. link to that. We have videos, pictures, you know, some written yeah. explanations. So, yeah, really a, good resource. Mm -hmm. And do you think the type of particle you use matters in terms of radiation? Does is there a particle that you feel, um, you know, treats cancer more effectively, or all the, are they all effective with just different side effect profiles? Ah, uh, yes, the proverbial Pandora's box question for a radiation oncologist. Um, how much time do you have, Danny? Uh, so as much time as <laughs> The big picture view of this is the damage that the radiation does to the cancer cells in most cases is the same. We're basically creating oxidative species in the body that destroy 
a cancer's DNA, which is the code that the cancer cells use to divide and, and replicate and grow. How you do that damage is what you're getting to mm -hmm. in terms of what kind of particle to do it. Um, so for things on the surface of the body, we can use particles called electrons, um, which don't go very deep into the body. They deposit most of their radiation on the surface. Mm -hmm. So for things like skin cancers, electrons come in handy. Uh, for things deeper in the body, the most time-tested particle, it's not really a particle, um, it's actually an electromagnetic wave that is delivered in the patient called a photon. Mm -hmm. And that photon does its damage, it's going to sound a little confusing, but basically when it gets in the body, they become, it generates electrons that do the damage, but deeper down, so not on the skin surface. Now, more recently, there have been, and it's not necessarily new, but it's just more publicized and advertised now, is um, heavy particle therapy, which would involve things like you may have heard protons or carbon ions um, are basically charged particles or heavy ion particles that also do damage to cancer cells in a similar fashion deep into the body. So not things on the surface, things that are deep mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. The theoretical utility of these particles is that in the case of protons, for example, they purportedly have less exit radiation after they do their damage. So if you were treating a cancer in the body, the process of how a photon and a proton hit the body and get to the cancer are essentially indistinguishable. What the benefit of protons purports to be is that there's less exit radiation or radiation behind the tumor or behind mm -hmm. where you're going. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what we've seen, at least based on published data thus far, um, as well as studies that have closed because of lack of meaning endpoints is that there hasn't that hasn't borne itself out into clinical benefit at this time in mm -hmm. most cancers that have been tested. Um, so the thinking is that even though we think we understand the dosimetry of these heavier ion particles, we may be missing something that we don't know. Right. Um, or the techniques with which we're delivering these are not as sophisticated yet as what we can do with photons. So there's constant work in that area. Uh, but, you know, it's a it's an evolving part of the field that gets a lot of attention because of the cost and um, the development. The cost of these facilities is not inconsequential. They're very expensive in general to build. Right. And so when you build something like this, you obviously want to utilize it. And so I think there's a big marketing mm -hmm. push for these things without necessarily a proven clinical utility in a in a randomized trial. So yeah. it's it's tough for patients because you're inundated all the time as, as same thing in your space with drugs, you know, ask your doctor if something something is right for you. Well, the same thing happens to us um, in radiation oncology, but instead of a drug, it's, mm -hmm. well, what about this way of delivering the radiation? So it's, um, right. it's, it's tough when there's a lot of information out there that may or may not stand up to scrutiny. Right, right. And I, I think that question comes up a lot in terms of, you know, not knowing those details, which you, you know, shared with us about the differences between the particles and how the radiation is given and some of that. Um, you know, the side effect profiles and, and, and looking at also the 
um, the way the radiation is given. I think what, what patients ask often is, you know, am I candidate for this type of radiation? You know, I've, I've heard about this from a friend. I've heard about this on the news. Um, I, I think what I tend to advise patients is just to, you know, meet with you guys, meet with Dr. Cassie, meet with, you know, some of our other radiation oncologists where you can really outline those things which you, you know, uh, just informed us of and, and, and advise them on what the research shows and what some of the literature shows as far as what is the best technique for your type of cancer. Because like you said, the marketing and such of some of these newer techniques, um, you know, will make it look flashy, but it's not necessarily the right choice for you, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, it, the hard part I think is I want someone who, when they choose a treatment or if they choose a treatment to feel comfortable with that treatment. And so a lot of times I'll send patients out for second opinion because I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't claim to be all knowing and maybe I am missing something that is out there. So if a patient wants a second opinion or they want to hear from a proton center, you know, then, that, then I encourage them to and I get them connected in that direction. Uh, but the, the truth of the matter is, at least, again, based on June 25th, 2021, there's just not a lot of good literature out there for the vast majority of tumors that protons are superior to photons. Um, you know, I think there are cases where I would send a patient, and I have sent patients to, where I think there really is a, a either a proven benefit or a strong um, logical rationale where protons would be beneficial. So certain pediatric tumors, mm -hmm. uh, children's tumors that require irradiation of the entire spine, um, I think there's a big benefit to protons. Um, certain tumors at the base of the skull, uh, protons certainly um, I think will prove to be the winning choice. And then you know very very young women with um, early stage lymphomas in the chest, you know I think lymph, uh, proton at least getting a proton opinion. Um, to see if, if it makes sense for them is those are the those are really the situations where I always push to someone to at least hear from a proton uh, center, but in the vast majority of cases, again, it's what's published either shows their equivalent, or in some cases show that the side effect profile is actually worse um, mm -hmm. with with some of these newer um, part charge particles. So a lot of our treatments, Rick, are given intravenously, and I know that we. Uh, collaborate with you often to give a uh, intravenous uh, radio kind of therapy that's uh, uh, radio emitting for both prostate cancer and um, uh, neuroendocrine tumors, uh, Zofigo and Lutathera. Could you advise us on what those uh, medications are and how they work and how they could help patients with those types of cancers? Yeah, so um, the first one, Zofigo, is a treatment given for men with metastatic prostate cancer. So prostate cancer that's gone to the bone, uh, so spread from the prostate into the bone with minimal or no other disease. Um, Zofigo is essentially an IV medicine that's given over one minute, so it's a very fast infusion. That's given um, once a month for six months. And basically what it is, is radium-223, which is a radioactive isotope that's linked to a molecule that um, is specific for prostate cancer that's in the bone. And so when you get this injection, the Zofigo travels throughout the whole body, and anywhere there's prostate cancer in the bone, it essentially emits short distance length radiation that kills the cancer uh, by damaging its DNA. Um, so it's a way to 
help men who have painful areas in the bone get pain relief, and in the right setting, based on randomized data, improve survival. So increases the odds of these guys living longer after treatment. The other one is a little bit newer, uh, called Ludothera, which we've actually, in the community setting, I think are one of the first in Florida to offer. We've had it for a couple of years now, right, mm -hmm. right after it got FDA approved. And what, what that essentially is, is similar kind of design to Zofigo in the sense that it's a radioactive um, isotope that's linked to a molecule that's specific for receptors on the neuroendocrine tumor. This medicine is also given through the IV. Unfortunately, not over one minute. It's a, this one's a little bit longer. It's kind of a whole morning kind of infusion uh, mm -hmm. for several hours. But mm -hmm. it's essentially the same principle of it travels throughout the body. And anywhere there's neuroendocrine tumors in the liver, in the gut, in the lung, in the bone, it will deposit the radiation to try to kill these cancers. So mm -hmm. it's been pretty revolutionary in neuroendocrine tumor. And, and you can speak to this as much as I can. You know, once neuroendocrine tumors fail initial therapy with octreotide, the options that were available for a lot of patients, you know, historically either weren't as effective or had, you know, some more kind of high-profile side effect profile. Mm -hmm. um, so I think Lutathera has been a nice bridge um, that it allows for targeted treatment with minimal side effects, but also is effective. And just like Zofigo, in the right setting, in a clinical trial, was proven to extend the life of some of these patients. Yeah, I think you're right on that in terms of the side effect profiles and, and the effectiveness uh, of the Lutathera for the uh, neuroendocrine tumors. It's been, it's been a great option for patients, and the fact that we can give it here right on campus is just, just fantastic for the patient. And, 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 I, and I'll just final word of caution that I think I've said before on other podcasts, but, you know, be careful with Dr. Google uh, when it comes to Googling anything, radiation, chemo, it, really anything health-related. It's, as, as someone I heard once say, is it goes, information is plenty, so there's a ton of information out there, but knowledge is not, mm -hmm. meaning that just because you can get a lot of information doesn't mean you, you, it's easy to synthesize and how do you apply that to your specific case so that's you know just be very very careful if you're a listener out there just googling things and, and then reading about different things because there's a lot of nuance to some of this stuff right, right. we have one listener in new zealand the hell? i swear to god shout out to the <laughs> listener in new zealand Can that's you please, so weird please write us an email Wow, that's yeah, weird. Yeah, please, any questions, if you want to ask Dr. Rick about anything, he's happy to answer. If you're going to start with doctor, I know. just commit. <laughs> cut that, cut that. I've been told not to say Dr. Rick. Weekend plans. I'm not on call. Win All for right. me. Woo. It's a win. Nice. Um, I think we got golf coming up in a couple weeks, you and I. One week to be exact. Danny's going to... As usual, probably put me to shame on the golf course. <laughs> I did get new irons not too long ago, and, and I'm hitting them pretty solid. That four iron off the tee. Last time we played, I don't even know why you have a driver. Yeah, about 220, 230 down the fairway. I'll take it every time. But my short game's another thing. <laughs> I can chip and putt. We can't have it all. No, we can't. We can't. We can't. That's why golf is so much fun. No, Even it's when awesome. you think you figured it out, you yeah, never figure it out. Live and in always, Florida, get to golf all year round. I mean, it finds a way to bite you. <laughs> it does every time. But that's what keeps you coming back. Yeah, yeah, it does. So, so yeah, we're golfing in a week this weekend. 
it's NBA, just family stuff. Yeah, got NBA playoffs on board. We do. Yeah, I think what Clippers picked up a win against the Suns. They were talking about the uh, what Suns in four. Yeah. Each each series that didn't happen. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, but some big big stars were out. So Chris Paul came back and he went a little COVID slow. Yeah. It was it. Yeah. They slowed the pace down pretty dramatically from how they played in the first two games. Kawhi still getting professionally rehabbed yes. somewhere. Yes. He was in the in New Zealand, maybe. Yeah, he was in the owner's box last game, but yeah, it's. I don't know. Who knows? No, no, yeah, exactly. Who He's knows? a mysterious guy, He's isn't he? He's a mysterious he? guy. Yeah. And then, touched on Trey Young earlier, but the Hawks up 1-0 against the Bucks, game two tonight, as we're recording this. Yeah, I think a lot of people would take the Bucks to win the series, but I think, I mean, the Hawks are a sleeper. I mean, they beat, what, they beat the Knicks, and then they beat, um, who was the last series? Uh, they, they beat the Knicks, and they beat the um, 76ers. Yeah, I mean, that, they were the number one seed. Sixers. Well, someone who lived in the ATL for five and a half years and went to a lot of Hawks games, it's it's fun. They're 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 putting on a really good product right now. Now, it's big question: If they make it to the finals, are you going to go see a game? Uh, or do you want to see a game? I would love to see a game. <laughs> Have you seen my clinic schedule? <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. Yeah. Fix uh, Rick's clinic schedule. Uh, Albany. <laughs> so. Um, to give the listeners an idea, they block off time for us to record these podcasts, and I'm always running late, right? Despite allegedly being blocked, so yeah. But hey, well, maybe a weekend, you know, if there's a game on the weekend, true. who That's knows? That's true. That's true. So they're either going to play Suns or Clippers. So yeah, actually, we're going up to Atlanta after Fourth of July. Oh, nice. Yeah, gonna hit sure. the aquarium up. It's a, a fun aquarium. Things. Have you been yeah. up there before? I haven't. It's for a lot of fun. I've been to Atlanta, but I haven't been to the oh, aquarium. I got a good question for you. Please. If you could be any animal, okay. what animal would you be? I. It's either some kind of bird, like a hawk or an eagle, okay. or a tiger, maybe. I could see that. One or the other. Yeah. I mean, I want to be at the top of the food chain, and. You know, I, I think being a bird sounds cool because you get to kind of fly around and stalk your prey a little bit from above. That's a weird reason. Uh, <laughs> the flying part, I get. Stalking the prey. I mean, you think about it, right? You know, they can't they can't order on Grubhub, right? They have to look for their food. But the tigers can order on Grubhub. But no, what other animal <laughs> can order on Grubhub again? <laughs> That's not a fair well, okay, if head. you can, I'm just saying there's a plus of flying and stalking your prey at the same time. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's dark. <laughs> it's not that dark. They're animals. Come on. <laughs> okay, Rick's, got, uh, Rick's probably a koala or something. No, I, I want to be know? a, my favorite animal is a penguin. Penguin? <laughs> I freaking love penguins. They're like the coolest animal on earth. They just belly right. slide. They like hang out in groups. But you gotta watch out for seals all the time. Those yeah. seals Not are gonna. Not if you live in a zoo. Yeah. Exactly. Well, penguins. you want to live in a zoo? Penguins are the bomb. If I was a penguin, yeah. I love penguins. Oh, I don't know. Being a penguin's sweet. I mean, theoretically sweet, right? But not. <laughs> what? I'm pretty sure this is all theoretical, <laughs> unless you plan on turning into a bird somehow. <sighs> penguin, yeah, penguins. <laughs> They look cool, but Brad, I don't think it would be as you? cool. 
I think I would want to be my dog. Like, have my dog's life. Okay. Yeah, well... Very pampered. She, oh, my God, yeah. But if you could be any animal, type of animal, what would, you, would you be a dog? Like, more of a wild animal. Oh, like, say. wild? Yeah. Or just, you know, it doesn't have to be specific, so you don't need to... Okay, okay. Um... Maybe like a monkey. That's my favorite animal. Hmm. Monkey. I can yeah. see that. Mm-hmm. Close to humans on the evolutionary chain. Yeah. Shout cute. out Charles Darwin. They're they're cute, you know. They're yeah. little and just swing swing around. Would be cool to swing from trees like that. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. Hmm. What about the throwing feces at each other part? Alright. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Not so fun. Do, not, so fun. <laughs> not as not as into that. I like it better when we pick on Danny. <laughs> no comment. Yeah, I know. No, I See, think I think I'd want to be my dog. Still, I don't. I think yeah, everyone's. Di- I think most, everyone. Most people's dogs live pretty awesome would lives. Would like to be their dog mm-hmm. for yeah, a day. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. Do you guys have pets? I have a dog. I don't know. I have a miniature dachshund named Pino. He's he's the bomb.com. Is he named after wine? Pinot Noir. Yep. Nice. Yep. So, my wife and I, our favorite type of wine is Willamette Valley Pinot Noir from Oregon. Great, great so, region. Good year in the valley. Good year. Uh, <laughs> so that's what our dog's named after. And I, yeah, he's he's hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been over there to the wine country? Yeah, yeah we took a trip. Yeah, it's nice. It's been a while, but yeah, we were out there. How about home. you, Brenna? No, can't say I have. Well, Danny? I haven't yet, no, but I'd like to. Well, like I've, to. I've been to Tennessee wineries, but I don't think that's really the same. Yeah. I don't know that yeah, I've had also, a Tennessee wine. They also wine. make wine in Florida. <laughs> Where? Yeah. Oh, like I guess. St. Augustine. St. Augustine, yeah. 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 There's a place Duh. in central Florida. Uh, can't remember the name of it, but they make wine. Hmm. Yeah. Not, uh, not, not quite on, the same. I don't think it tastes the same. Mm-mm. No. Thanks so much for coming back and joining us for another episode of Medical Minute. If you have any suggestions on things we should talk about, questions you'd like answered, or just want to say hi, New Zealand listener, you can email us at medicalminute at csnf.us. And make sure you follow us on social media. Search Cancer Specialist of North Florida on Facebook and underscore CSNF on Twitter and Instagram. And as always, we appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time, and we hope you learned something today. And remember, when it comes to your health, stay informed. Ask questions. And and tune tune in in next time. time. You guys have gotten so good at that.